Hey everybody, welcome to the Voxology Podcast. Today, we are a trio. Ladies and gentlemen, we have Timothy John Stafford, of course, of course. But the treat today, the surprise, the joy, is we have Susie Peeland in the house. Hello, Susie Peeland. And, and again, Hello. officially, it's not P. There's no P in this. There's no but, P. But it's according to Seth. It's kind of official at this point, I think. <laughs> it's one word. Susie Peelin. I did to have to clarify it for somebody the other day. They asked me what the P was. I'm like, it's not a P. There's no P. <laughs> <laughs> or you just say perfect. And throw that out. Hardly. So I have, a, I have a question for the room. And I'm just curious. I don't know why I was thinking about this. But if, if there was only one television in your house and only one remote to that television and the whole family sitting together, who controls that remote? Well, I mean, we only have one television in our house. We sat down last night, and uh, it started with Mazzy, but when she wasn't looking, I took it. Nice. So I could control nice. the volume. Okay. And wh what was the choice? What was the family choice? We were watching um, the new Miss Marvel show. Ah, okay. Which is great if you haven't watched it. Really? Yeah. It is good. Oh, nice. Susie Lynn, what about you? I mean, you live with... Um, a husband and four mm -hmm. male children who are now not children anymore. Yeah. But. Well, I only live with three currently. Yeah, but one the other of them one lives on exist. his own. Yeah. He does exist. And it's similar to Tim's household. It starts with the young Nathan Lind mm. and all of his screaming, hyper YouTube people that he oh, loves boy. to watch. Oh, wow. And if Steve is in the room, he quickly takes control of the remote and it usually ends up being either some marvel star wars type of show or mm. uh master chef oh wow yeah wow okay mm -hmm. you know for the eeries it really depends on seth eerie there are times when he's flexible and there are times when he's not um <laughs> usually it involves um bits of musicals um He's a, right now we're into sing number two. And, those are good though. Those um, are fun. Those are fun. Absolutely. But, but Seth is also easily distractible. So there have been times we have offered up different electronic devices. Like, hey, do you want to check this out on my phone? And they'll like, yeah, and wander off with the phone. And then, and then we're back. Then we're and back that's when business. I get influencer videos sent to me. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> get, Do you get uh, those Marco, too, Tim? I get Marco Polo's just long diatribes. <laughs> oh my gosh. I got the best video yesterday of Seth. Oh. Topless, I might yeah. add. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> Sitting down and doing a makeup tutorial. I kid you not, Whoa. it was a makeup tutorial. And he took the mascara, he took the mascara wand and he just started like, you know, with his fingers, just squeezing all the mascara juice out of the brush and smearing it on the oh, no. camera. It was no. amazing. So I texted Justina and I'm like, yeah, I'm like, no, cause it was coming from Mike's phone. So. Oh, no. And it was like it was like he had watched YouTube or TikTok or something and was legitimately doing an influencer video. I so it. I texted Justina and I'm like, listen, I oh. think that someone might have gotten into somebody's makeup in your house. You might want to <laughs> check because makeup is not cheap these days, oh especially Lord. mascara. Oh my and, lord! Oh my! No. Yeah, he came it was down. So funny. He came down and showed me 
his finished work. I did not realize it was being videotaped. And that that is amazing. Oh, yeah. I saved it. I saved it. I'll send oh, it to you. Well, you it's on your it? phone. You can see oh, it. Oh, well, that's probably true. <laughs> yeah, it's on your phone. <laughs> I do open my photos often, and I'm surprised about what's happened. Oh, um, it's so good. But we only, we only will trust him with a device if our need to watch a show is great. Yeah. Usually we'll be very accommodating, but like we were, we were in the middle of Better Call Saul, and um, there was a key key point happening, and we just said, "Okay, so we cannot handle," because he knows how to mirror his iPad onto the screen, so he can at any moment interrupt us with Newsies or Annie yeah. or Matilda. Just or, take over the screen. Yes, That's yes. There's a new Matilda um, musical coming out. There is. We are we are aware and watching. Anyway. We have today, ladies and gentlemen, a treat for you beyond Susie. So Susie is the treat, but then there's a treat even beyond Susie. Um, we're going to interview a guy named Matt Matthew Thiessen, who is a professor at McMaster University in Canada. He wrote a book called uh, Jesus and the Forces of Death. Ooh. Um, Just about, a little light reading. About ritual impurity in first century Judaism. Now... I have to set this up because this is so, so theology nerdy um, that, that, you know, and Tim and Susie do a great job of like, okay, so what? You know, why does this matter? What the heck is going on? Um, I, I just love this stuff. It, but I wanted to interview him because like Jen Rosner uh, from last episode, um, there are these big debates about the Jewishness of Jesus that I think are really important as we understand and read the Gospels and then work to apply what the actual ministry of Jesus might look like today. And this is somebody who's saying, no, no, Jesus um, in the realm of ritual impurity actually is validating not only the system that's in place, but it's another example of him fitting perfectly within the Judaism of his day. And so there, there are lots of words being thrown around. The word discharge is used a couple of times. I want to just it's prepare true. our audience for that. There's editing by the three of us. Um, um, with, Silent with, self-editing. With a lot of self-editing. Self yes, but Matt, Matt is a really interesting guy, and he does great scholarship. I mean, this is like this was a. There aren't a ton of books that really advance the field. This is one that does. And um, so we hope you enjoy it. Before we dive in, I want to thank Josh and Todd for allowing us to uh, offer all of these episodes free. Thank you for coming on the Patreon team. And we're super grateful for your kindness and generosity. Just by way of reminder, we're a 501c3 nonprofit and we are crowdfunded. And so thank you. Thank you. And thank you. So we'll, uh, we'll be back after the interview because wow. There's a lot to chew on. And, um, and so, anyway, here's 45 minutes of Ritual Impurity. Hey, everybody. Uh, welcome to our podcast. And today we have um, somebody that I've been uh, looking forward to talking with for a while, Tim Gombas uh, introduced me to his work and referenced it in his Romans podcast. Uh, but we want to welcome Dr. Matthew Thiessen today to the show. Uh, hello, Matt. Thank you for letting us call you Matt. 
Um, how's it going? Where are you and what's happening? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm great. I'm, uh, it's hot and humid and I'm on the, on the unair conditioned third floor of our house right now. So, oh, uh, sweating profusely, but, uh, this is my sort of retreat from the, the, the mayhem, uh, of the house downstairs. Um, that says a lot about the mayhem of the house downstairs. Yeah, if the yeah, unair conditioned third story. Exactly. The windows are open. Uh, okay. unfortunately, there's construction happening outside. So if you hear large bangs and whatever, it's not our house. Yeah, uh, I'm great. I'm, I'm uh, up here in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, uh, and teach at McMaster University here. Where did you, did you grow up in Canada? Is that? I did. Yeah, did? I grew up down uh, near Windsor, Ontario. So just across the border from Detroit, Michigan, uh, in the tomato capital of Canada, Leamington, Ontario. <laughs> Uh, it is now it is now the cannabis capital of Canada oh. uh, has greenhouses galore that grow cannabis for the entire country and probably others other countries oh. as well so wow yeah it's congratulations the lovely place to be from and to not have to return to <laughs> <laughs> were you what was your what was your family like life did you did you have any faith tradition that you were raised in or yeah yeah, yeah. so Leamington uh is not just the tomato capital of Canada. It's also pretty big Mennonite territory. Ah. Um, and so uh, I grew up in the Mennonite Brethren Church, which is sort of an evangelical leaning stream of the Mennonite world. And so uh, born and raised in, in that tradition, um, no longer in the Mennonite Brethren tradition, but but part of the larger Mennonite uh, world still. I, I belong to Mennonite Church Canada, Yeah, which is a... a non-evangelical branch of the Mennonite church. Yeah. <laughs> and, and was, uh, how early did academia seem appealing for you? That's great. <laughs> um, not very early. Uh, I, I actually started, <laughs> you know, in high school, I was excellent at math and science and I had every desire to um, parlay that into untold wealth um, in an ease of life, a, a vacuous but easy life. Um, nice, nice. And so I went off to university to, to actually, I was going to do, go do pharmacy because it seemed sort of the quickest route to decent money. Um, mm. And in my first year of general science, I found myself uh, not merely hating, but actually um, like psychologically unable to attend any classes except my one philosophy class, wow. uh, which I attended religiously. And it was, it was an, an atheist philosophy prof who was just um he was captivating and nice. i realized pretty quickly in in my first year of university uh i might want that kind of money but i couldn't possibly do this for the rest of my life so i took a bit of time off and decided i wanted to go study theology wow um with with even then i probably had a sort of instinct that maybe i would you know want to teach huh. uh, the bible and theology more more broadly so his so. atheism and philosophy in general wasn't something that was a threat to you. You found it invigorating instead. I mean, I definitely found it, I definitely found it a threat to, to some of, you know, some of my thinking, um, but not a threat to, to run from, but a threat to really uh, engage mm. and to think through. So, um, yeah. you know, I, I wouldn't find as much of it as threatening now as I did then as a 19 year old uh, or 20 year old or however old I was. Um, but uh, yeah, it was it was just really intellectually invigorating, and uh, you know, really set me down a path. Uh, well, that that ultimately has led to this point. So <laughs> to this yeah. moment, right now, exactly, <laughs> exactly, right. to being on the Vox podcast. <laughs> oh yes, oh yes. 
uh, the culmination, certainly, of a, of yeah. a long and storied career. Um, what was it that got, brought you to Duke? And who did you study under? Um, I mean, there were lots of reasons I wanted to go to Duke for my PhD. And, and to be honest, I, I really didn't even think it was uh, possible. Um, mm-hmm. I had no idea that I'd be able to get in there. And it, it actually took a couple, couple, couple tries to get in. Um, but ultimately, it was the professors who were there who were... Um, you know, really attractive people to study with. Uh, Joel Marcus is who I ended up working with predominantly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Ed Sanders was there when I applied, but he retired just as I got there. So I didn't get to, didn't get to work with Ed Sanders, which was, um, you know, a little bit of a disappointment, but other professors, you know, were, were uh, fantastic as well. So did, Joel you see, Marcus, did you see Richard any causation Davies. between that, between your arrival and his retirement, or do you think that was purely... <laughs> Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it's actually, it, it, so I went to, I did a master's degree in Jewish studies at Oxford mm-hmm. and Ed Sanders taught at Oxford for, uh, for many years. Uh, in fact, he's his first, I think his first actual like teaching position was here at McMaster mm. in Hamilton. So I've been to three different institutions <laughs> where Ed Sanders was at. So I'm, I, I'm trying to copy him perhaps, uh, or he's just trying to avoid me. Perhaps I'm not sure. Yeah, that should what be was, the title of your next book, Chasing yeah. Ed Sanders. Chasing Ed Sanders. Oh, really cool. <laughs> I, I like that. Chasing Francis, if you've read that. Uh, um, okay. What uh, what what drew you to uh, the topic of your dissertation? Like, when did because your your dissertation was circumcision, correct? Okay. Yep, that's correct. And so, as you as you do. You're looking at the a range of biblical topics, and um, what drew you to that? Yeah, um, it's sort of sort of like I think I can pinpoint two different uh, moments, and one one was uh, as an undergrad taking some courses in New Testament with a professor who was decidedly influenced by uh, by N.T. Wright. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, growing up in a sort of broadly evangelical uh, milieu, th- that sort of regular quote-unquote lutheran reading of paul was very prevalent and so um as an undergrad being introduced to a new way to read paul was was really exciting but i found i had real problems with it as well um no no no, no. i'm sorry you're suggesting nt Wright isn't infallible (laughs) um yes yes i am okay all right we'll get to that right yeah so uh, you know there was sort of these two takes on paul and i didn't really like either of them Mm. And obviously, works of the law is one of the key points of, of that debate. And so I thought it might be nice to dive into one key point and just do a real deep dive into it. And so that was part that was sort of the larger um, context. And then the other the other factor was um, one night as a as an MA student dealing with uh, some pretty significant uh, insomnia issues. I was reading through the Old Testament pseudepigrapha, this mm. two volume work edited by James Charles Worth. <laughs> Uh, all these like cool Jewish texts that didn't make it into the canon. Totally. Reading through the book of Jubilees that really it was like two 30 in the morning. And it was the first time I'd read through the book of Jubilees, which is like the best book ever written to my mind. Mm. Um, and it just like hammered on and on about circumcision. And I thought, you know, this seems like, uh, this is a really important thing for this particular Jew, at least, and probably for a whole bunch of, of ancient Jews. So this is mm. sort of what brought me into looking at circumcision. Yeah. And then and then the book I wanted to talk with you about called Jesus and the Forces of Death. Yeah. About ritual impurity. How did that how did your work on circumcision sort of lead you to this direction? Oh, yeah. Uh it was really in the middle of writing my dissertation on circumcision. 
and thinking about how, how Jews constructed their own identity mm. and the identity of others, Gentiles, non-Jews, um, that I really got somehow got hooked into a, 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 some Jewish scholarship uh, by Jonathan Kluans, Christine Hayes, around conceptions of impurity. Mm. Um, and that led me into the work of Jacob Milgram, who's uh, written a th- massive three-volume commentary on Leviticus and a commentary on Numbers. And just as I was, I was supposed to be writing on circumcision, but I'm, all I'm doing is reading on ritual impurity. I realize, mm. um, again, uh, <laughs> in the middle of the night, although this time I was sleeping, I actually woke up and I, my, my brain, my subconscious had made some connections. Um, I realized, wait a minute, these, these three sources of impurity that Jacob Milgram hammers on about in, in his commentary you see them in the gospels and i've never never thought of that mm. and so you know even as a phd student so this was probably back in 2008 or 2009 uh i thought i have a book i want to write here um mm. on ritual impurity and it's taken took over a decade to get to it but i did finally yeah well let's let's get to the book by way of this question how jewish was jesus you you referenced <laughs> the two schools of thought <laughs> Um, uh, about Paul and his view of the Jewishness of Jesus. And I, I think that sort of sets up your whole topic. Um, so feel feel free to riff a while on this. So (laughs) how Jewish was Jesus is such a funny question, uh, as though there's sort of like a a thermometer or a gauge where it's like kind of Jewish. (laughs) Totally. totally. Um, so I like I like that because it just sort of, as soon as you start thinking about it, it's like how, how anything is anybody on right um, right and, and who gets to decide right uh, and i think that's part of that's part of the really interesting thing around around thinking about you know the new testament or early christianity or whatever you want to call it in judaism who gets to decide who's jewish and who's not jewish who's good jew who's a bad jew right and so i think a lot of that is happening um yes. When we when we talk about Jesus, so the biggest book that I know that's been written on Jesus is John P. Myers' mm-hmm. it's a historical Jesus project. I don't even know if it's six volumes now, five or six volumes. I can't remember. A marginal Jew. Um, I really hate that title. I think it's an awful title because uh, I don't think Jesus was a marginal Jew. Right. Jew. That's the actual title of the book. Yes. Yeah. Well, the six volumes uh, in counting. Um, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I and they're not skinny book. volumes. No, they're huge. It's like I think fourth. Is it 2,500 or 4,000 pages now? I can't recall. Yeah. Um, it's massive. And I just think it's um, it's really question-begging. Because who's the one who says, oh, Jesus, you're on the margins. Right. Your Jewishness isn't Jewish enough for me. Well, right. I think everybody was kind of doing that, just like modern religious groups do that, right? Um, Mennonites do that, for instance. But there's no Mennonite equivalent to a pope who gets to call it. Uh, <laughs> right, right. So who's who's the one who who makes these these comments uh, and, and makes these sort of assessments? I think is really a really important first question to ask. Um, now the reality, and, and I think this is sort of where you were wanting me to go, maybe um, <laughs> is is we have a huge narrative that's it's two thousand years old, right? Essentially, around Jesus, not quite, almost two thousand years old around Jesus that he has abandoned Judaism rejected Judaism, abolished right. the Jewish law, and all that stuff. That's right. And that is a very prevalent view of Jesus and the gospel's depictions of Jesus. And I think that's just false. Uh, mm. And, you know, so we brought him up, may as well bring it up again. Uh, Tom Wright. Mm. 
Let's uh, do in, it. In his many writings about, about Jesus, says things like Jesus was a Jew who just happened to, um, oh, what's the language he uses? Re, well, he uses redefinition a lot to redefine or who um, gets rid of key aspects of Judaism, calls into question key aspects of Judaism, like right. temple, dietary laws, purity systems. Impurity, yeah, exactly. Uh, and so Jewish but not that Jewish is a way that James Crossley has talked about Tom Wright in a lot of people's views of, G of Jesus, especially since the Holocaust. Uh, Christian theologians and scholars have talked a lot about Jesus' Jewishness, but there's always like, you know, with you, what you give with one hand, you sort of take back with another, and it just turns out Jesus looks a lot like you or your particular flavor of, of modern Christianity. Right. Um, and so, you know, this is one aspect of the book that I'm, where I'm trying to push back on that. Mm -hmm. It's a very understandable, I think, very understandable Christian desire uh, but I think it's also wrong. Yeah. Can I ask you a clarifying question? Please. What you mentioned something just a few minutes ago that the, I forget how you said it, but that the gospels portray Jesus as not that Jewish. Is that what you meant to say? So I, I said, there's a narrative that the gospels don't. Okay. Yeah. So it's not, I think the gospels depict a Jesus who's like right in the fray Right. Of, of first century Judaism, having arguments with other Jews and not like arguments necessarily that are like, you know, fisticuffs, um, a word I've never used till right now. That's amazing. That's amazing. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's discussion, dialogue. Yeah. Argument. Sometimes heated, like it gets around the supper table or whatever, um, around what it means to be faithful and mm -hmm. what it means to be law observant, truly law observant. And he's having these arguments about it. And um, using the sort of argumentative tactics or, or legal reasoning that ancient Jews often used. So ultimately, I'm saying, no, that, that depiction, that reading of the Gospels that they depicted Jesus abolishing the law is wrong. Yeah. I think the Gospels depict a very different Jesus than that. Right. And so what, where I saw you driving towards is... Um, different from the Lutheran understanding of Jesus is kind of opposed to Judaism or Paul opposed to Judaism verse versus on the other end of a continuum, sort of the new perspective, which is Paul sort of, or Jesus standing in contradistinction to some aspects of yeah. Judaism. You're arguing that, no, no, Paul or that, that Jesus and Paul, but Jesus in this particular book stands fully within Judaism and isn't repudiating particularly the ritual the understandings of ritual purity that would have attended kind of first century thinking around these subjects. Is that exactly right? Yeah, exactly right. Why, why? Well, let's, uh, before we get to why, can you map just that quick distinction you make in the first chapter between the, the way, the way that the old Testament sort of maps holy no. and profane versus pure and impure. And not all of that is <laughs> sinful. Uh, yeah. I thought that was super important to understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So th there are four key categories that you need to know to get, well, Leviticus especially, but then I think a lot of a lot of ancient Jewish texts, maybe not all of them, but many of them. Holy and profane, that's sort of one binary, uh, one pair that maps the entire world. Hmm. Something is either holy or it's profane. Everything, 
is either holy or profane. And holy just means set apart. Set apart in this instance, in, in relation to Israel's uh, religion or cultic systems, to Israel's God. It's for special use. Mm. And profane is everything else. Uh, and it's not bad. Right. It's just That's regular. the point. It's not yeah. bad. Profane's not bad. It's just like plain, ordinary. So Common. the Sabbath, the Sabbath is holy. Right. That doesn't make Thursdays bad. Mondays we all know are evil. Yes, um, agreed. But uh, categorically evil. But the other days aren't bad. They're just not for special use. Got and it. so I think that's a really helpful way when you think about holy and profane. You think about days. Of course, Tuesdays aren't evil or bad or sinful. Yeah. Um, they're just there for regular use to do with as you desire, basically. Okay. Um, so that's holy and profane. Everything maps onto it. And then there's another pair. And it's not equivalent to holy and profane. And this is really important because a lot of people, uh, uh, scholars, clergy, lay people frequently get this wrong. This other pair is not equivalent. And it's pure and impure. Again, the whole world divides up and is either pure or it's impure. Um, and pure doesn't equal holy. And profane doesn't equal impure. They're separate categories, four yeah. distinct categories. So everything is pure, either pure or impure. And... Um, Impurity is where things start getting getting tricky because uh, purity can get divided up into different categories, different types of impurity. And so this gets us into things called sin. Not all impurities are sinful, uh, but all sins are, well, maybe all sins are, are in, viewed as moral impurity at one time or another. So there's moral impurity, sins, things you choose to do that you shouldn't do that create moral impurity. Um, you never ever actually have to do them. You've chosen to. I mean, we could get into something like total depravity here, but right. we can leave that aside. These are things you choose to do. They aren't naturally occurring and they come out of actions. Mm -hmm. uh, it would be an example of something yeah. that's morally impure that's not yeah. sinful. Nope. So no, I'm, I, I I'm already confused. I, yeah, no, I don't necessarily <laughs> want to make that, I don't, don't necessarily make that distinction. So Leviticus will talk about moral impurity and certain things as moral impurities, usually around things like, well, certain violence, certain sexual acts, um, theft, things like that can be viewed as moral impurities or, or lying, deceitfulness. Um, but they don't all they don't list every single potential misdeed and identify it with moral impurity. I think Got it. I think that probably happens. Like I think Paul thinks all sins are moral impurities. Hmm. Okay. Uh, so there's moral impurity, but then there's ritual impurity, and they're not yeah, the same. That's huge. And again, this is an easy mistake to make because the language is just the same. It's just impurity and impurity in, uh, in both Hebrew and in the Greek translations. And ritual impurity really only comes from three different sources. None of them are like moral actions. Uh, the three sources, you read about them in Leviticus uh, 12 through 15, and then in Numbers 19. And it's first, the easiest one is corpses. Corpses are ritually impure. Uh, the second is something in, it described at great length in Leviticus uh, 13 and 14, <laughs> a series of skin conditions that often gets translated as leprosy. Right. And it's not leprosy. Right. Like, pretty categorically not leprosy, despite every English translation except now the the newest uh edition of the nrsv the nrsv uh updated edition 
no longer translates it as leprosy, which is fantastic. Uh, it's just a series of minor skin conditions. But they're minor, and that becomes so important. When yeah, Jesus, so instead of healing a leper. Yeah, exactly. This is somebody with eczema. Yeah, or something akin to that, something relatively minor. So don't think Mother Teresa in leper colonies, which are one, you know, I mean, the colonies, the, the, the support given to those people is wonderful. But don't think that it's very it's something quite minor as a rule. And it's not something that we would view as like a, you know, an awful disease, uh, which is often what we get taught in Sunday school sessions around leprosy. I've right? taught that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's two. And the third is genital discharges of either blood or semen. Mm -hmm. These are the only sources of their three genital discharges of blood or semen. This thing called, well, what's the Greek translators have as lepra um, or tsarot is the Hebrew. And it's just like scale diseases or something like that. It's a way to render it. And then corpses. It's never sinful mm. to contract ritual impurity. It's only sinful if you bring it into a place where it doesn't fit. So if you run off to the temple knowing you're, you're, you have corpse impurity uh, and you run into it or the tabernacle, then your, your ritual impurity leads you into, well, you've used it in a, such a way that you've sinned. Now you've done something morally impure. Okay? So I, I have, yep. Oh, did you want to keep going? I mean, I could. I think I should. I'll stop there and let <laughs> you guys ask questions to direct where Because, I, I mean, we can. This is so good. Yeah. So, one of the things I was wondering uh, is what purpose did these distinctions serve? Yeah. Um, were they boundary? Were they boundary focused? Were they compassionate? Were they? Yeah. Were they? Were they? Were these distinctions common in the ancient yeah. Near East? Yeah. Um, did I almost, you know, all the religious systems sort of have these? And and just sort of why, um, beyond just Yahweh sort of accommodating to the thought of the day, uh, how did these function? And why were they, why is so much time spent on them in the Hebrew scriptures? Yeah. So, you know, you can never, <laughs> you never want to say everybody everywhere did this. But the evidence seems to suggest pretty much everybody everywhere in the ancient Near East or the ancient Mediterranean world, um, including the Greeks and including the Romans, uh, held to some form of purity system, in ritual purity system. And those purity systems predominantly, not exclusively, but predominantly focus around uh, particular locations, temple cults, uh, temple apper, tabernacle apparatus, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. It all has to do, and especially with ancient Israel, it all has to do with God wanting to live amongst some pretty super messy things called humans. <laughs> and uh, for God to do this, I, I repeatedly tell people that God, especially in sort of the priestly thought of, of the Old Testament or Hebrew Bible, God is an absolute neat freak. Mm. He needs things absolutely tidy. Uh, if you live with a neat freak or you ever have, you know what I'm talking about. I'm, I'm unfortunately a bit of a neat freak, which is maybe why I like the idea that God's a neat freak. It sort of helps me apologize for some <laughs> my behavior. Um, God needs things tidy and humans are super messy. And so for gods and humans to dwell in, or God and humans to dwell in close proximity, God has to set up some house rules for things to function properly. And if they're followed, everything's copacetic, everything's cool. 
Uh, and God can take a little bit of a mess, but after it gets too messy, God leaves. He just can't put up with the mess anymore, which you actually see in, in the prophet Ezekiel, God mm-hmm. abandoning the temple and flying the coop uh, because it's it's just turned into a pigsty uh, and you can't, can't bear it anymore. So it, you know, there are a couple ways to talk about it. You can talk about it as boundaries and oh, this is keeping people out, certain people out. And of course, this is going to keep, you know, women out more than men um, out of out of certain areas of holy space because, well, monthly, they're going to be ritually impure. Um, and, and when they give birth, they're going to be ritually impure and things of that nature. Uh, so I think there's, you can, you know, there's, it's not wrong to think about it as it's excluding but why is it excluding? Is it, is it excluding because they think it's women are sinful when they're menstruating? No. Is it sinful that women have, have given birth? Obviously not. It's a protective measure to keep the sort of signs of mortality, people who are very close to that, that um, what's the word, the, the, the presence of their own death or their own mortality, to keep them away from god's presence because if they go in at that time it's actually super dangerous to them and so it's actually set up as a protective measure that they won't die in their impurities or because of their impurities here's what you need to know if you're going to come to the temple don't do it here 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 and here because if you do it's going to go badly come at these times come when you've gone through these these relatively minor um you know waiting and washing periods Uh, so it ultimately is a matter of keeping God's presence with Israel and making sure humans can do it safely because God's, um, Hannah Harrington has, who's written a bit about this as well, talks about God as, as akin to a radioactive force. Hmm. Um, and I think it's good because radioactive forces can be really, really positive, Mm -hmm. but if you approach them the wrong way, they can be very, very negative. Uh, anybody who's watched the the Chernobyl uh, show series or read about mm. Chernobyl can, can think about just how bad it can be to approach radiation yeah. without proper protective measures. And in Indiana order. Jones and the Lost Ark. Right. I mean, goodness, we know we know that. Faces. Yeah. One, one thing I think you said that was super important is that the three types of ritual impurity, lepra, discharges and corpses they all share something in common and um and it's that commonality that sort of binds them together and you hinted at it in your previous answer but i wondered if you make it explicit for for us because it particularly applies to the to the subtitle of or to the title of the book yeah 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 so this this is again i'm just i'm just really copying and pasting from jacob milgram here and then applying it to the gospels um Milgram argues, and there's debate amongst Leviticus scholars. We didn't get too bogged down in, but Milgram argues that what holds these, what what binds these all together, is that they all rep, they're all representative of death. Corpses are pretty, you know, that doesn't need explanation. They're dead, dead bodies, and they're the most powerful impurity. Yeah. Corpses, you can't make a corpse pure. Yep. It is yep. forever ritually impure, um, and it's radiating this impurity out at all times, um, even under the ground. So. Uh, corpses is super easy. Lepra is not that hard, actually, either, because we see a number of times, both in you know the Old Testament Hebrew Bible and then later Jewish scriptures, uh, sorry, Jewish texts like Josephus and then even rabbinic literature, you see 
lepra, this, these skin conditions getting associated with um, corpse likeness or death. And so the appearance, uh, yeah, this sort of white flaky skin has a corpse like appearance. And so, uh, I, <laughs> you know, I, I wrote the book, I haven't read it um, since I, you know, <laughs> went, went through the, the proofs, but I think there's a chapter, I think that chapter on lepra is called Jesus and the Walking Dead, which Correct. was you know, a pretty shameless uh, attempt to tap into pop culture um, and connect it to my book to sell an extra copy or two. Well done. Well um, done. But Lepra as this sort of, these corpse-like people, but they're alive, um, mm. but they are associated with the realm of death. And then genital discharges, there's a little trickier. Um, and, and people have pointed this out. How, what does giving birth have to do with death? Um, well, only mortal, mortal beings... Uh, give birth, which is a common trope in Jewish and, and Greek and Roman thinking as well. So it's cl closely connected to mortality. Only mortal beings really have children uh, as a rule. And it's sort of a, it's a one attempt to overcome mortality is having children um, in the ancient world, but also in our modern world in many places. Of course, giving birth is, um, as women especially know, as people who give birth especially know, it's, it's uh, dangerous, potentially dangerous. And yeah. We've driven mortality rates down, um, but they're still there. And uh, so childbirth is associated with death. How many infants and how many mothers died in, in childbirth in antiquity? So, um, but just the loss of blood, more generally though, just the loss of blood is the loss of one's life force, right? Mm -hmm. Blood is associated with life in both Genesis uh, 9 and Leviticus 17. Um, and semen is, uh, well, according to ancient science, concocted blood, whipped up, frothy blood. Uh, so again, it's sort of, again, loss of life force. So there's this sort of, you know, maybe tangential, but association nonetheless with um, with death or loss, loss of life force. Frank so Peretti could do a lot with that definition, but let's just that? put that aside. Frank Peretti could do a lot with that definition, yeah. um, if you know who that is. If, again, pop culture, Christian pop culture oh. references, sorry. Um, one of the, and then what you do after you've mapped this is that you then apply this sort of um, way of understanding to different encounters that Jesus has with people who are ritually unclean to show that Jesus isn't overturning the ritual unclean system, yeah. um, but what sits behind it. Do you want to you want to talk a bit about that? Totally. Yeah, I would love to. Yeah. So this is what this is what hit me uh, in the middle of the night that. Wait a minute. We got we got these lepers, people with lepra, popping up in the Gospels. Um, well, actually, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, not in John. We have corpses in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we have one uh, well genital discharger, a woman mm -hmm. who has a genital discharge a hemorrhage, and has had it for twelve years. And so there are these three people, three these three categories. Um, and they're there in, in the Gospels, uh, in the Synoptic Gospels. What are they doing there? So the traditional reading is, oh, Jesus is showing the purity system is like over, it's done with, it's garbage, it's, it's antiquated. It's oppressive. Yeah, well, so it depends who you ask, right? It's either antiquated um, or it's superstitious or it's, yeah, it's oppressive and it's exclusionary and Jesus is including these people or formally excluded. That's how I've always understood it. Yeah, which is always great. The interesting thing is he doesn't include them with their conditions. Um, 
It's not weakened at Bernie's with the corpses, uh, which is an analogy <laughs> that just popped up for me. Uh, they're not sitting down to have table fellowship with Jesus. They're corpses. Now, the hemorrhaging woman in the in the person with lepra, Jesus could eat with. Uh, and he does include them, but only after he deals with their conditions. Mm. And so, you know, if Jesus denied the reality or importance or significance of ritual impurity, what he should have done when the person with lepra came to him and said, uh, if you desire, you can purify me, you can cleanse me, is what the man says to Jesus. Jesus should have said, buddy, have I got great news for you? This oppressive system is a bunch of baloney. Forget it. You got a skin condition and a pretty minor one that 2,000 years from now, a little bit of head and shoulders is going to clear up. Don't worry about it. Let's go, let's go grab some lunch. But he doesn't do that. He actually says, mm-hmm. I desire, I want you to be clean, be clean. <laughs> so if Jesus is trying to send the message that impurity doesn't matter, he's sending it very poor. He's a very poor communicator because mm. um, you don't deal with something that doesn't need dealing with. If your whole point is to show it doesn't need dealing with. Right. And so Jesus purifying this formerly impure man shows Jesus has the power over um the power to purify or to remove impurities. And of course, at the end of this scene, so it's in Mark 1, it's Jesus' second sort of grand, uh, you know, powerful deed or miracle, whatever you want to call it. It's the second one in, in Mark's gospel. What does he say to the man at the end? He says, go now, show yourself to the priest and offer what Moses has commanded, which you can read about in Leviticus 14. It's like totally law observant, good, good stuff. Um, and uh i it's it, to me it's remarkable that anybody could ever read that passage any differently <laughs> and yet so many of us have mm-hmm. because we were sort of trained to read it that way and so that's how it just naturally read um but as soon as you understand the system a bit it reads so naturally in a different way and it's hard to imagine ever reading it that way right. you know old way again well, it's such a good illustration of the big point that we started with, which is Jesus is not overturning yeah. uh, the Judaism of his day. He's operating within it fully yeah. and completely. Yep. Um, Susie and Tim, thoughts, questions? Okay. So I have a I'd question. Never... Yes, Susie, go. <laughs> <laughs> um, what are? Can you think of some implications that are traditional way of understanding this stuff, the way that we inherited learning this stuff, how you see it playing out in the church today. And I love that you're not part of the American church, you're in Canada. So it's a, I think it's a global thing. Uh So how do you see the effects of this? I mean, I think somewhere in your introduction, it talks about like the misunderstanding of this has, has woven its way through lots and lots of bad theology. And so, as we are, you know, a lot of people are kind of untangling their faith from from what they were given and grew up in. How do how do you see it playing out? Yeah, so I think there are a few things. One, the first and sort of easiest thing to talk about is is Christian anti Judaism or supersessionism, right? Mm-hmm. Um, those other readings, whether they're the new perspective readings or the Lutheran readings, whatever you want to call them, they implicitly are critical of Judaism um, and require there to be something wrong with Judaism that Jesus comes and fixes. Uh, and then later 
Paul. And this, you know, I think I think reading the Gospels this way doesn't suggest that at all. Um, and Jesus isn't the first person to actually deal with ritual impurities. The system itself does uh, to some degree, but then you have people like Elijah and Elisha who've done things like Jesus does in the Gospels. And so it's not outside of the realm of sort of Jewish thinking. Um, so I think, you know, think that having a better way to talk about Jesus's relationship to Judaism and Christianity's contemporary relationship to Judaism is really important. We don't need to, to uh, denigrate Judaism. And if, and if we feel like we do, that probably says something pretty negative about our Christianity. It can only look good when we make other people look bad is probably not a great selling point for Christianity. Uh, so I think that's one thing. I think the other thing, and this is something that that has repeatedly struck me over the, the last you know decade or so, uh, and, and this could just be my own faults as a, as a you know kid sitting in a pew, listening uh, infrequently to sermons or you know, Sunday school or whatever else. But my big takeaway growing up was uh, that Jesus basically came to die for our sins to get us into heaven. Mm-hmm. And it, I never really understood, well, what is he kicking around for 30 years for then? Why didn't he just die? Um, Matthew's gospel, we have Jesus fleeing in the night to Egypt. Why didn't he just get killed by Herod then? Uh, Why waste 30 years of time? And of course, why have gospels that talk about these cool stories, but the real point is at the end. And uh, it really struck me as I was working on this stuff, actually before I even wrote the book, but but when I was thinking about these things, that you get a really nice thick connection between Jesus's mission or ministry, his life and the cross in later Christian theology. When you think about these, not just as some sort of like, Oh, super cool miracle. Look how, look how powerful Jesus is like they're fireworks. Um, they're showing Jesus's power over death and the forces of death. That's the title of the book. Mm-hmm. So Jesus's ministry, I am convinced is, entirely about purification purification of moral impurities sins which don't pop up that frequently actually jesus doesn't forgive sins all that frequently in the gospels he's much more likely to remove ritual impurities in this in the actual narratives than to forgive sins um but they're connected they're in forms of impurity and i think they're all associated with death sin is associated with death um and so we have these this pure large-scale purification mission happening in Jesus's life. And I like to talk about it in military terms, which um, for a Mennonite is rare, but I think it's appropriate. <laughs> this is, this is Jesus fighting uh, early skirmishes with forces of death, like lepra in corpses in general, this genital discharges in winning. And in the cross, we see Jesus triumphing over death itself. Death itself seems to get the victory over Jesus. And yet Jesus is raised from the dead and destroys death itself and so Mm. um to think about uh the gospels as um you know narratives of of victory over death throughout connects jesus's life to his uh you know death and resurrection which are so central to later christian thinking in ways that i at least had never really appreciated would you also include his victory over unclean spirits in that motif yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> I was sitting there talking about purification. I'm like, okay, well, come on, I'm forgetting a purification here. That's the other purification. We have we have these impure spirits right. pop up in the Gospels, which um, then the authors tell us at various times they're, they're demons. 
Mm-hmm. And these are these impure superhuman forces that are bouncing around the world and terrorizing people. Um, and Jesus also cleans up that mess. And Mark Mark five is a great. Ch- I, I think mm-hmm. it's a chapter on purification. Right. Um, you have you know the the Gerizim demoniac, who's actually filled with a legion of impure spirits, naked, living amongst corpses, amongst tombs, amongst impure uh, dead bodies, and there are a whole bunch of impure animals, pigs. Totally. It's impurity oh, all around. Right. And Jesus, you know, shows up on the scene on the shore, and there's this like this backdrop of impurity, and at the end of the story, all the impurities are gone. Um, Mm -hmm. the pigs and the demons are drowned. The man's clothed, no longer living amongst the corpses. And it's a, it's a, you know, a great, uh, grand vision of Jesus's, uh, purificatory power. Mm. Is that the, can I ask a clarifying question about corpses? Please. The other two, at least in a ritualistic sense of cleaning oneself makes sense. Um, the corpse one, is it just proximity to corpses is that the unclean nature of that particular function yeah so so with corpses they're just they're unrelentingly impure forever which is kind of wild if you think about it right um there's nothing you can do to make a corpse pure unless you raise the corpse from the dead which doesn't happen too frequently right Right. um so then the question is well what do you do if it's sort of like radiation. What do you do if this thing has like a half-life of 10,000 years? It's going to be shooting radiation forever uh, in terms of, of human life. So you have to sort of bury it and then set boundaries around it. Like, for instance, Chernobyl, mm-hmm. um, sort of a, no, a no-go zone. Um, and so that's what really that's what cemeteries are. They're let's yeah. put the corpses here uh, and mark them properly so people at least know where they are. Now it's not wrong to contract that impurity, right. but if you do, you have to know to you have to know you've been exposed, and you have to go through the right sort of washing process afterwards. So there's it's a seven day period. If, if and it's, you're right, it's not just contact; it's even proximity. If you're in a room with a corpse, you're impure. Right. That's the good touch. Samaritan. That's the good Samaritan yeah. issue. You correct? walk exactly. You walk. You walk over a corpse. Uh, or maybe even if your shadow, I wondered, I've, I've wondered about crossing to the other side if it has to do with, I mean, it's right. just super, super care around if that's a corpse, let's really steer clear. Gotcha. So it's this uh, kind of energy that comes from this, that radiating. you have to quarantine or cleanse yeah. from, and the longer you're in the presence of said corpse or cemetery or whatever, yeah. there's a, the, the infection, so to speak is, is larger. Well, so not it not that that makes a lot of sense with our sort of you know thinking about things like COVID or whatever, right? But it's right. that's not that's not quite accurate with corpses. It's just if you're living it with if you have a corpse, if you live in a cemetery, as soon as you leave the cemetery, that's when the seven days starts. Okay. Mm. So, uh, so if you're a grave digger, yeah, you're going to be impure. Or an for undertaker. Yeah. yeah, you're going to be <laughs> which which and this is really important, like mm. in Jewish thinking. It is a commandment and it's a, it's a deed of mercy or compassion to tend to the dead mm-hmm. and prepare them for burial. It's not sinful at all. It's necessary to care for the dead. Um, but even still, you still have a seven day period afterwards. So if you're constantly tending to the dead, 
you're never you're never going to be able to go to the temple so there have to be mechanisms in place to allow so in things some like ways that it's a sacrificial impurity that you still have to cleanse from but it's realized that there may that it is in the best interest of humanity that it's intentionally caring can yeah. be intentionally caring obviously yeah. there's negative yeah. ways of doing that but yeah yeah, you murder somebody, you're going to become corpse impure if you're like strangling them to death. Right. So that's all bad, right? Uh, but the corpse impurity is just ritual impurity. Yeah. There's a moral impurity because you, you murdered somebody. There's corpse impurity. But it's, yeah, it's a seven-day period of purification, washing twice, and and then sacrifices is required. Got it. Or offerings to, the, the red heifer offerings, uh, ashes are required, I should say. So, um, What is the... Um good samaritan thing that you mentioned mike the the debate about why the 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 contradiction between the command to care for a dead body and the command for a priest to not touch a dead body if it's not of a certain relation i think yeah. i mean go ahead matt you're the phd yeah. in the room yeah see that's exactly and this is another story again that often gets used to denigrate judaism um, right. There's the priest and the Levite who, who refused to go near the man who may be dead. And I think in this, so this is a, it's a story, right? Mm -hmm. And we tell stories for dramatic effect to get a point across. I don't think Jesus is saying this, who you, this is who the priests and the Levites are. Right. He's saying here are sort of the paragons, the leaders of, you know, Jewish faith, Jewish religion, and, and, they're doing this. We know this is bad. I think he thinks he and his readers are thinking, oh my gosh, that's awful. How dare they? Um, how dare they pass by this potential corpse? Because if he's alive, they should keep him alive and care for him. And if he's dead, there's a commandment about that. Um, it, it, we see about it in later rabbinic Judaism, but I think it's lurking behind the story in Luke uh, um, that when you find an abandoned corpse, you are legally obligated to bury it. You can't just leave it. Absolutely cannot just leave it. And so this depiction of this priest and Levite doing it are, are basically highly offensive to anybody who hears it. And it's the Samaritan, and Samaritans and Jews don't get along particularly well, who's the one who does it. Um, and I think Jesus is, is making this, telling this story because he assumes he and his readers all have this shared belief that um, there's this law, priests can't contract corpse impurity unless it's a close relation, uh, and probably Levites too, although we don't have any evidence for that, uh, legal evidence for that. Um, there's this law, but there's the law to bury corpses, abandoned corpses, and this takes priority. We all, we all have laws that come into conflict with each other, right? Because yep. um, Jesus was asked, who's my neighbor? Yeah. I mean, that's exactly. what sets up the whole thing, the ranking. Yep. yep. So we all have, we, every, every legal system, every religious system has sort of laws or principles that sometimes come into conflict. Um, how do you, you have to figure a way to rank them at times, very rarely, yeah. probably, yeah. but at times. And yeah. so what do you do in those cases? And in later Jewish tradition, it's very clear the preservation of life trumps pretty much everything. Mm. It's Sabbath and a house collapses because there's an earthquake, get digging. Uh, there's a pregnant woman who says, I am aching for bacon right now. You feed her bacon. Uh, doesn't matter. You preserve her life and the life of, of um, wow. fetus 
because a pregnant woman knows what she needs to live. And you don't think you have, you don't, you're not smarter than uh, a pregnant woman knowing what she needs to eat. So there's this like, whole uh, amen. Of, these are big uh, facts. <laughs> around preservation of life trumps any law. If you're living the law in such a way that it's leading to death, you're doing it wrong. Mm. And so that's, that's the good Samaritan story in a nutshell. Mm. Um, yeah. That's excellent. So Matt, um, we'll, we'll let you go into your, you know, air conditioned part of part of the house where where can people find you online where would you direct them yeah i mean i'm, I'm most active on uh most active uh on twitter um i regularly tweet nothing particularly deep and thoughtful these days i don't <laughs> have the bandwidth for, bandwidth for that right now but uh there was commentary on haircutting yesterday i found that to be particularly yeah. irrelevant to my life yeah. but okay i just i just got a haircut my hair was very very similar um but i just got a haircut yesterday uh but yes yeah commentary on haircuts is what you're going to get these days <laughs> um, nothing particularly deep but sometimes when i'm reading a book i'll throw a good quote or whatever up on there yeah, I love it, man. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having we me. Really, yeah, we really appreciate it. Super cool. It was really nice to meet you. Nice to meet you all. Yeah, yeah you're okay. awesome. See you, man. All right, take care. Bye. Woo! <laughs> Come on now. Come on. Theology nerds, let's go. Oh, Next my Next time, goodness. Tim, I'm going to text you all my inappropriate... Please. Please comments do. because I was to... having a really hard time containing myself. Yeah. No, I, I, there was a lot of, a lot of that self editing. I was trying really hard, which that's <laughs> no offense to Matt. I mean, he's no. awesome. He's, he's really cool. It's all offense to me, but I just had all kinds of comments that could have derailed the whole conversation. We're all, we're all junior hires here. It's and he also, just, and it's I feel like fun. he was baiting a little bit too, when he, Hey, don't use that. Bernie's. Don't use. No, don't. <laughs> Don't. See, there's just See. that's why I was quiet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, what did you guys think? What what stood out as interesting, uh, questionable? Uh, anything jump out at you? Um. I don't know, Susie. Do you have any? I want, I want to try to formulate my <laughs> <Yeah>. thoughts. <laughs> I mean, I had there were a, a few things that really jumped out at me. I, you know, I thought it was interesting how he described God as being a like a he, I, he used the word tidy, but it, like kind freak. of in, in essence a neat freak, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that that he is that way, and he can't he doesn't like messy and won't be where messy is, and he'll leave. And mm -hmm. so I'm like, oh, that's that could be like potentially very shaming for people. And, you know, I thought Jesus came to enter into the mess and to be with us in the mess and to deliver us from the mess, but that he wasn't afraid to come and be with us in it. And he makes the very good point of he invites people to join him and be with him after he's addressed the, especially the ritual impurity. Mm -hmm. But I just thought, and I understand what he's saying about holiness and and all of that, but it, just the way that he said it was, wow. Right. And yeah. I wonder how nuanced that is overall. Like, and maybe this is not something we will understand here or in this time frame. But so much of that untidiness, there are certain aspects of it that are 
that can be intentional on behalf of people, but there are others that are not. And so this, like the skin thing or, um, even like, you know, the monthly period or whatever, like there's, there are some discharges that are Mm. willful and others that are not. And so it's interesting how, how that actually really plays out with how God, um, can or will not associate or enter in. Um, does that make sense? Like, Mm -hmm. so that, that, and I don't know if there's an answer to that. I know everyone's kind of playing with or sorting through what we have. And then, you know, especially with this, this is reflecting back, you know, thousands of years. So it's, Mm -hmm. there's so much extra baggage that's, that's tied onto the Mm sides of these kind of topics. But that, like, when you bring that up, that makes, I was, I was wrestling with that too. It's like, how does that there is a lot well, of shame for things that you maybe even weren't even a part of, you know, wasn't you choosing to do. Mm-hmm. But I think too, it goes to show, and I don't know, maybe this is me trying to settle it in my mind, but the the kind of binary way of thinking that we were all brought into that, yeah. you know, God can't exist where there's sin. It's sin that separates us from God. And, and yes, that's true. And also Jesus comes near to us and, right you know, he doesn't join us in our sin, but he, he comes to us in our sin and, and wants us to come out of it by, you know, taking our hand or whatever. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. just, it could be both and, and we're so used to it being one or the other. Yeah. Yeah. That, that to me, so, so, uh, when I first read the book, there were things, I mean, I just love, pe- I love reading people who are articulate, who are really detailed, um, and who make an argument that I'm just not at all at home with, because I'm very much of the new perspective on Paul motif, that Jesus was, was reorganizing Judaism around himself. Um, and you see that with the temple, you see that with Sabbath. So, so I was... I, I didn't want to go too far that yeah. direction because he's very specifically talking about ritual impurity. But similar to you, Susie, I, I was, I was just like, okay, I get it, I hear it. Um, one of the things that he didn't address in the book, uh, so I was trying to be very circumspect to just keep it on those topics. But you know, it was like when Jesus declares all food clean. Um, what, what is that? Or when um, you know Peter is shown um hey what what was unclean is now you know clean do not call anything i've called clean unclean which totally reverses peter's judaism you know or his his understanding anyway so he goes to eat at the house of a a gentile i mean so so um i'm in and i i one of the marks for me of a of a great book is i i flag a lot of pages so i have lots of pages flagged about those particular gospel episodes of the the healing of the leper, which I always understood and taught it as, or the healing of the hemorrhaging woman, like there's all sorts of incredible stuff. And this mapping of pure, impure, holy, profane is super important because yeah, um, I use those I use those synonymously. Right. And uh, he does a mm-hmm. great work on, no, 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 nope, nope, not at all. And it makes sense then of some of the temple instructions and the priestly instructions 
Um, and not everyone agrees that, that what unites that uh, ritual impurity is death. Not everyone agrees with that. So that's kind of a big claim he's making. Um, uh, but if you understand it that way, then avoiding unclean animals. I mean, again, what, what are these animals associated with death? Um, you know, it's just like, I don't know how far to go. Um, so to me, this was very stimulating in the sense of it comes up against something I don't in, initially agree with, but he argues so well for this very specific point that I was like, oh, okay, I should probably relook at some of the other assumptions. Yeah. I have so many questions. I'm going to not ask all of them. One of them <laughs> is, um, so this is a great, about- this is a great interview, right? When you come away, just going, yeah, 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 blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And I didn't want to ask him in, in the interview cause I didn't want to derail the, um, the conversation. Cause some of that, even with what you just said, like then how much of what God's, um, what God was doing then was scientific and less instructional or, you know what I mean? Like if it's like these two things can't mix, therefore they don't. And Jesus undoes the scientific nature of that perhaps, or reinforces it or redefines it or whatever. Um, cause that adds so much three dimensional or even fourth dimensional nuance to that entire thing, or it's really two dimensional and really straight down the middle of the road with, this is just what this is. Um, but I had a question like when he said the, the death thing made me think of that, um, that Jesus came and really the whole point was, was dying to defeat death. Mm -hmm. Um, and the 30 years doesn't really matter. And why did he, why was he hanging out? And, after we spent so much time in the Sermon on the Mount and new creation and part of the kingdom being here and now, the now and not yet, all that kind of stuff, there seems like there's so much point to the entire well, he was saying years. that He was saying that not as something he believes, but he was saying often gotcha. that's what's taught, is that there's no point to Jesus's life. It's just about his death. So why not kill him right away? Right, okay. He that was actually making the opposite point of, well, the stories of the Gospels have all these great stories about Jesus's life. Why are they in there if the, if the point is his death? And he's saying, understanding that Jesus is defeating the powers of death all the way through the Gospel narrative. Is that saying that it is a death narrative overall? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So he, he is. Yeah. So he's okay. defeating the powers of death and unclean spirits, ritual purity, ritual impurity, moral impurity. Right. Right. And so he's overcoming the forces of death and then ultimately death itself in his crucifixion. So that takes it one, if I can take it one more step out of that. Do it. When he talks about birth. Do it. Um, I wish I could remember exactly how he said it when he was talking about giving birth as, it was something in relation to death and yeah. that only things that were alive could give birth. And then I started thinking. Only things that were mortal. Mortal. Yeah. Yes, I wrote that down. Mortal. I did write that down. Um, cause I was thinking and about that pregnant women should be given bacon if they want it. Exactly. I, heard I mean, Which, I first, <laughs> amen. that's coming straight from a PhD. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, so there's a pregnant so, woman in the living room. She gets the remote is what we're saying. Yes. I think we okay. all know that. I think we've all yeah. experienced that. Facts. Um, so th- like I started thinking about, at first I was thinking about the Nephilim with demons cause it was Mackie, right? That was talking about that. There is Heiser. A, Heiser. So I heard of Machiavelli Heiser that uh, demons were the like released 
souls of dead Nephilim. And, and what we knew about the Nephilim though, were that that was angels mating with women. So right. that's a, that's women. a, sorry, my, I've, I've like lost my voice yesterday. So that is like beings that we are difficult to define, but could only produce life through a mortal person. Mm-hmm. And then which leads to the unclean spirits of the demons in the long run. I don't know. It's just like the <laughs> three dimensional aspect of the whole conversation. Cause yeah. every series we do now, we're de- we're tiptoeing around powers and principalities. They're name dropped. They're a key feature of every conversation, but right. it's still this kind of like, you know, esoteric yeah. right outside the conversation thing. Totally. But it, it plays a big role every time. So it's like, there's, and I think that those implications reverberate out through the entire thing, like all the way back through how God as a spiritual entity can or will or does not interact with what we have come to define as unclean earth. You know what I mean? Like there's just, mm-hmm. there's so much extra color around the conversation that we kind of like dip our fingers in a little bit, but we mostly just stay in our lane and I want to understand all that stuff. So will we explain it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Demons bad, angels good. Gotcha. Thank you, Preddy. <laughs> but I thought I that was know. interesting. I... That was the first thing I thought of when he said the mortality thing, that more only mortals could give birth. Well, angels are creative beings. So they're Yeah, is that is that in the in the definition of mortality within no, but that is such an obscure Timothy counterpoint to his <laughs> that I'm impressed. <laughs> Well, but what about the Nephilim? Away the, when I was pushing away the inappropriate <laughs> things, I landed there. Uh, it's so great. So great. So, yeah, he was not, he was saying, no, there's a great deal of emphasis of Jesus' life in the Gospels. Yeah. But one of the ways to understand the continuity is that Jesus was battling the forces associated with death the whole time. Right. And so these aren't just random, like, miracle stories these are selected to demonstrate jesus's authority over the forces of death yeah that makes sense so when you in the intro said that you like authors like this that are working to advance the field Mm -hmm. do you mean like the field of jesus scholarship Mm -hmm. what like what what do you mean by that well um i'm i am um a, a total neophyte in the world of, you know, academia. I love finding an author that I love and then reading who they read. And so that gets mm-hmm. me into progressively deeper layers of scholarship. And um, there is this, uh, and I forget the name of it, 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 but it's a kind of a cadre of uh, scholars who are unhappy with both the Protestant, traditional Protestant reading of Paul and Jesus over against Judaism and not happy with the new perspective on Paul where there's still something deficient about Judaism. So I think they, they think it's like Paul within Judaism is the name of the school of thought. So I have not read a bunch uh, from that school of thought. This was one of the books that I'd heard really advanced that school of thought um, against the N.T. Wright kind of thing that I've been, you know, immersed in the last couple of decades does that does that make sense yeah. to answer the question mm-hmm. so um <laughs> was that the first time you were tempted to debate a guest 
No, oh no. I, I mean, I listen. I really wanted him, but I just we just didn't have time. I didn't want to. I didn't. Well, I might just on the NT right stuff. No, I don't. I don't. I don't want to defend NT against anybody. I would have loved to ask questions like the ones we just brought up yeah. around uh, diet and circumcision, other works of the law. Yeah, because uh, the circumcision argument is brilliant in Romans. I mean, it is a killer argument um because he argues against the jews or, or the gentiles who assume jewish identity by just being circumcised yeah Tyson argues that no no, no the, the circumcision according to the law is eighth day circumcision and it's only eighth day circumcision so unless you were eighth day circumcised on the eighth day you cannot cannot be a follower of Torah in that respect. So that Paul- So you go through all that for nothing. Right. <laughs> and Paul employs that argument against those who are claiming Jewish identity by saying, listen, you're not even, even in your circumcision, you're uncircumcised. And so it was a really like- <laughs> Joke's on you. Right. But, it, but it's this, this really technically precise argument. And this is similar. It's like, I just enjoy scholarship that just, you know, that just isn't going after this broad swath, but within the broad swath, there's this really narrow focus of here. Let's let's reconsider the way we've read the purity stories because we've read them as a yet another case of Jesus dispensing with Judaism, and his argument is no, Jesus is respecting Judaism in the way that these stories are presented to us. So anyway, that was the big that was sort of the big takeaway, and I love the name of the book. I'm not gonna lie. Jesus and the forces of death. Yeah. Anyway, um, it should have been Jesus at Bernie's. Any la- <laughs> <laughs> any last thoughts, you two, before we wrap it up? No. Nope. Wow. It has been a delight. <laughs> it has been a feast for the senses. It has been a, just a joy. A feast to- for the senses. A two well because I get to look at you, yeah, I get to one. hear you. That's two. Yep, I get to smell. Um, I imagine, <laughs> I imagine that you, Tim, smell like sandalwood and leather. <laughs> and uh, Suzanne, I have no such imaginings about you. Um, and then, and then I like Tim. I imagine that your skin feels like a finely a finely um those gears turning yeah a finely <laughs> like timed peach like wow. it's, it's, it's the peak peak wow. of perfection wow yeah i think that's more than everyone wants to know all right <laughs> ladies and gentlemen you guys are awesome we are so grateful. Susie, thanks for thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Always. And as always, follow Susie on the tweets and in the instas. Susie Lind, L-I-N-D, and Susie with a Z. And uh, Timothy, John, and I, you know, wherever. All I do is tweet all day long. All day long. It's ridiculous how, how much tweeting is going on between the two of us. Anyway, guys, thank you so much. Hope you enjoyed the episode. See you next time. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this conversation. 
Voxology is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that is supported by listeners just like yourself. If you'd like to partner with us, you can do so at patreon.com backslash Voxology. You can also join the community and hang out and chat with us on the socials facebook.com backslash voxology podcast and on instagram at voxology thank you thank you thank you for walking the long road with us